0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining this webinar today. Special thanks to our three panelists, Lisa Kukie, Sarah Allen, and Gary Zulkin for taking the time to share their expertise on protecting the interests of incapacitated persons. My name is Heather Cahill. I'm a partner at Burns & Levinson. Along with Darian Butcher, we are the co-chairs of the fiduciary litigation committee of the Boston Bar Association. With me moderating this event is Jessica DeMurley, a partner at Pavian & Russell. She and Patricia D'Agostino are the co-chairs of the Elder Law Committee of the Boston Bar Association. Both of these two committees are sponsoring this webinar right now. We are really excited to hear from today's panelists. Let uh, me first introduce Lisa Kukie. She is my law partner at Burns and Levinson. She specializes in estate and trust litigation, guardianship, and conservatorship, elder financial exploitation, and divorce. In addition, she serves regularly as a guardian, conservator, trustee and court-appointed GAL. She is well known for her commitment to her clients, including serving as a high-touch concierge trustee to many wealthy clients, as well as helping clients 24 hours a day to assist them with mental health, addiction, and special needs issues. Lastly, Lisa is a leader within our firm, including serving on the executive committee and a personal mentor of mine. Thank you. And I'm
1: Please introduce Sarah Allen. Sarah Allen is a shareholder and director at Rice, Heard, and Bigelow and serves as a professional trustee. Um, prior to moving to Rice, Heard, and Bigelow, I was lucky enough to call Sarah my colleague at Pavian and Russell, where she was a great mentor to me and focused her practice in estate planning, estate administration, trust administration, guardianships, conservatorships, and special needs planning. Sarah is also the current president of the Boston Estate Planning Council during a time that's posing some unique challenges, but she's really rising to the occasion. And I'm also pleased to introduce Gary Zalkin. Gary has runs the Zalkin law firm, and he often serves as professional guardian um, and conservator for clients, and he specializes in issues relating to mental health and health care issues. He was on the forefront of the affirmation of healthcare proxies here in Massachusetts and helped to co-author the Mental Health volume of the Massachusetts Practice Series that explains the rules for guardianships and conservatorships. So thank you Sarah and Gary for joining us as well.
0: Thank you. So let's jump into questions for the panelists. Today's format is question and answer and we have reserved about 10 minutes to the end for questions from, um, from, this, from the, the guest participants. So the first question is directed to Lisa and then if The other two panelists have any additional um, answers. Feel free to jump in after Lisa's response. So this first question is a hypothetical. An incapacitated person's family member has competing healthcare proxies and powers of attorney. And the validity of these instruments are at play in the guardianship and conservatorship proceedings. The court appoints you, Lisa, as a neutral temporary guardian and conservator. How does your power relate to the healthcare proxy?
2: This is a great question. This comes up a lot in a state litigation where there's competing instruments uh, whereby family members are put into place and the court will very often appoint a neutral. In fact, I'm always shocked when counsel in these cases cannot agree on the appointment of a neutral because it's so common for the court to simply appoint a neutral. But it's, it's tricky when you're serving as a neutral and there are outstanding documents out there. So, one of the things that's curious is that when I'm appointed as a temporary, that means the case is still going on. And it's a suitability case. It's an issue of suitability of the prospective permanent guardian and conservator. And if you've got a durable power of attorney and healthcare proxy, particularly your durable power of attorney, that nominates the attorney, in fact, to serve in the capacity as guardian or conservator down the line, then that creates a statutory priority that the court has to deal with in this guardianship litigation. So, and it's not the same when a person is nominated as a guardian versus when they're nominated as a conservator. There's a nuance in the MUPC that didn't exist back when we were using chapter 201, back in the, the days before article five of the UPC was enacted back in July 1, 2009. So what happens now and since then is that if a guardian is a nominated uh, in, in connection with a power of attorney, the court shall, the statute says shall appoint that person to serve as guardian unless there's due cause for disqualification um, whereas with a guard with a conservatorship nomination in your durable power of attorney the court may appoint and it's more of a statutory priority but it's not a mandate it's there's far more discretion that the judge has so keep in mind that when i'm serving as neutral on a temporary basis I know that the case is going to court on the issue of the appointment of a permanent and that it's a suitability issue and that the person who's nominated in the durable power of attorney is already many steps ahead of the of the other competing interests because they've been nominated. And when you have competing durable powers of attorney, you may have competing priorities, people who are all nominated to serve as the guardian and conservator in the event that the court's going to make an appointment of a permanent in the future. So that's one of the powers that happens. My job when I come on board is to reduce conflict and find a mature and seasoned way to deal with the issues looking out for the interest of the principal, the person who signed these documents. So it's very important also if this is going to if you're going to have a case like this and you're going to be the person appointed by a court as a temporary fiduciary you need to understand the impact of the appointment of a guardian and conservator while there's already an outstanding durable power of attorney that has not yet been revoked and an outstanding health care proxy that has not been revoked and here again the law treats these in two completely different ways. So in my capacity as guardian and conservator, temporary guardian and temporary conservator, I have no authority to revoke that healthcare proxy. Nobody has the authority but the court, only the court on a petition in a guardianship can revoke the healthcare proxy. And there's a box to check on that petition and you need to check it. Or if you haven't checked it, you simply suggest to the court that you're going to amend and that it need that the healthcare proxy needs to be revoked. So if I'm serving as a temporary guardian and I've got a healthcare proxy out there who's a family member who may be trying to undermine my authority and I know that the court wants me to act, or perhaps we can't get along, then I might ask the court, revoke the healthcare proxy but what i generally do first is i will have a conversation either meeting in person or telephone or even by letter or email with the family member who's serving as healthcare proxy and we will figure out and negotiate what decisions fall within my purview and what decisions fall within his or hers and sometimes the facts of the case will let you know exactly where you're most needed and your capacity is neutral. So it might be that the person nominated, the family member nominated might be a physician and maybe that person should in fact serve as healthcare proxy for different routine and usual treatments. But when it comes to assisted living placement, nursing home placement, which might have an impact on the incapacitated person's residence and therefore trust interests and remainder interests and other issues that impact the finances of the person serving as healthcare proxy or other heirs and family members. And if you're in this kind of embroiled situation, then it might be that the decision as to whether or not the incapacitated person should be placed outside of the home should fall to me. Because perhaps the family is in such upset over the game-changing decision of placement of an incapacitated person outside of their home that sometimes pulling the plug on that issue might actually create calm and order in the family. So that, yeah, we can have the physician who's serving as healthcare proxy make decisions about Routine and usual medical issues that come up But the big stuff might fall to me and that might keep the peace in the family and keep people comfortable so that's that's one way to deal with it when it comes to a Durable power of attorney on the other hand the law here again is different It's another nuance. So just like with the healthcare proxy only the court can revoke it well with a durable power of attorney I in my capacity as temporary conservator, could actually revoke it. I could, and I would wanna ask the court, if I'm only a temporary, I would ask the court for authority or ratification for what I'm doing. Whereas if I'm serving as permanent, I'm revoking. When I serve as permanent conservator, I'm going to revoke any and all outstanding powers of attorney and durable powers of attorney because I don't want money to be transacted upon and to be moving around when the court's looking to me and, and holding me accountable in my capacity as conservator. So I'm gonna be very careful and, and proactive about this. Um, but I'll tell you, even if I allowed, you know, in some cases, even if I allowed somebody to continue on in their service as power of attorney, what the statute says is that that attorney in fact the agent under the power of attorney still is obligated to report to me and account to me so in my capacity as conservator i could say to the outstanding functioning attorney in fact i'd like you to give me accounts an account for what you're doing i'd like you to send me statements and so I have that flexibility if i'm serving as conservator or i can work it out and again here if you're embroiled if you're dealing with a family that's embroiled in litigation family litigation over assets and decision making for an incapacitated person who's presumably somebody who has financial means and there's there's um, acrimony relating to ultimately who's going to succeed to that person's assets then it makes sense to try to negotiate with the people who are nominated under these documents so that you can resolve issues and reduce conflict and find a seasoned, mature way to manage the incapacitated person's finances and personal decision-making without further explosions within the family
0: and what if their family is so angry and just so, is such a contested litigation and and the person who's named as healthcare proxy and who's named as uh, attorney in fact it has no special qualifications at all it's just a, fa- a basic family member maybe maybe a daughter or son um, and who's very angry at your neutral appointment as a temporary and you seek to get the, you go to the court and seek the revocation and they object what do you do then
2: Well, then it becomes, it becomes a battle. You know, if the family is that embroiled, this turns into litigation and it does happen. Um, You know, I try to meet with family members. I I really roll up my sleeves in these cases. I don't just sit in an office. I go out, I, I visit the incapacitated person. I meet with the family in their space. I meet in a neutral space. I meet in my office. And I aim to understand and listen to what is important to the family. Families have um, paradigms. And I like to understand what paradigms in the family are driving the way that people act. And there might be a way to reduce conflict that way. But if there's not, it means litigation. And if I'm serving as the, the temporary Neutral the temporary conservator or the temporary guardian and I feel that family is going to uh, Act without my having any Say or the family's going to transact on on the incapacitated person's assets um, Then I know that the court's eyes are going to be on me the court put me in place For a reason and that is to establish order predictability accountability and if that falls on my shoulders and i need to litigate to show the court that i have created order and predictability and accountability then i need to do that but that to me is a last resort and i would rather roll up my sleeves and meet with everybody and see if we can't get this to function sufficiently without the court coming down in a very heavy way on family members
0: gary and sarah do you have any other thoughts
3: on the, on these topics? I have a quick thought. Um, so especially as temporary, what I'll often do is hold them in abeyance, that I'll let the the fiduciary know, the, the, the respondent-appointed fiduciary know that their document is frozen, so they can't take any action. I'm not revoking it yet, and I'll have them write back to confirm that they understand that. And if they don't do that, if they can't understand that or they don't want to understand it, then I revoke it but I seldom, to never revoke it unless there's a strong argument. Because let's say that if I'm conservator and we can resolve things and have things go on autopilot, and so there's no need for me to be involved anymore, um, and everybody's playing nice, that's great for me to then excuse myself, have the agent step back, I, I, know, you know, I unfreeze the power of attorney, and then everything goes better for everybody. So the, the less intrusive I can be, the better. Um, but the, the person who's, what, what often happens in these cases is the agent is the person Stealing stuff, and so I'm a little bit less uh, accommodating when that happens.
4: Right. It's it's all about you know the the upfront communication, making sure everyone knows the role that you're playing, and then and then putting it down. So if if there's an op- opportunity to be flexible and you know keep things open for the future, you can. But if there's not a situation where there's theft or a serious concern or suspicion of theft, then you you have to put down the hammer. So. Um, but I think to Lisa's point, it's all about going in with an open mind, getting all the information you can, and then acting accordingly.
3: Another issue is that, um, so I think, uh, Lisa touched on it, the difference between guardianships and conservatorships. So if I'm conservator and there's a power of attorney, then I'm answerable for what they do. So it's on me if they steal and I didn't stop that. Um, but if I'm guardian and there's a healthcare proxy, even if I'm given the authority to revoke the healthcare proxy there's not the same liability on me if the healthcare proxy makes a poor decision and I haven't stopped them from doing that. So I'm, I'm more cautious as conservative when there's the power of attorney.
1: Gary, could you build on that a little bit where, where you are serving as a guardian and there is a healthcare agent serving as well and perhaps the healthcare proxy affords the agent greater authority than your authority. You know, How do you work together? How do you find that hospitals and you know medical facilities Know, respond to kind of the, the two different roles. And you know, could you just comment on that a little bit?
3: Yeah. So so you know it's an interesting thing that in some ways the healthcare proxy can have broader authority than the guardian. And in some ways it's narrower. So it depends upon what the issue is. So for non-medical issues, it's all the guardians show if they have that authority and the healthcare proxy can't touch it. Um, for medical things, often it's the unless something is is in the terms of the healthcare proxy there's a limitation then the the agent can has much broader authority than the guardian would have. So that's another argument to not revoke the healthcare proxy if one doesn't have to. So if there are substitute judgment issues and it's clear what the answer is, it's far better to have it done efficiently with the agent uh, making the decision rather than me as guardian. Um, for what the hospital likes to see, so that's kind of shifted. My experience and you know it depends on the hospital, depends on whatever my experience has been that they like to see a healthcare proxy that that's the language they know now. And so even if I'm guardian, they'll call me the healthcare proxy and I'll clarify, but that doesn't mean anything to them. You know, I'm the person who makes decisions and that's all they care about.
1: And Gary, when you're involved in a case, how often do you find that a guardian ad litem is appointed versus counsel for an incapacitated person? I feel like that's often a guessing game as to which way is the appropriate way to go.
3: So um, I've, the, count, the cases I've been in, the counties I've been in, I see a lot less GALs than I think other folks do. I, I don't see them appointed too often. Um, so there are times when I'll ask to have a GAL appointed. Um, so I guess the uh, one issue is if I'm counsel or if I'm fiduciary. Um, so if I'm fiduciary, there's not as much of a downside to GAL, I think. Um, and ideally, if that person knows what they're doing, they can be a colleague. And so that's somebody I can bounce ideas off of and see what do you think. Um, I had one just today where where the court was offering to waive the GAL. And I wanted to have a GAL. I'm I'm fiduciary in that one. I'm looking to sell a house, excuse me, and the respondent in this one is fairly paranoid um, and is convinced that, that not only that I'm stealing, but the person before me was stealing, the person before them was stealing. So I have no doubt that she'll be very upset about the sale of the house. So in this case, I'm going to be with her for years, and, and, and you know she's fairly healthy. I want to be able to say, "Hey, the court weighed in, the GAL weighed in." So, you know, for for psychiatric reasons, it's it's really good to have uh, to be able to rea- reality test by having a GAL appointed. At other times, I think it's kind of a waste of the person's money. So, if if they're not going to add value, so so first, if the court wants them appointed, then that's the end of the show; they're they're being appointed. Um, if I'm fiduciary then you know, the issue is trying to give them the information to show why my side is clearly the, the virtuous side um, as opposed to if I'm fiduciary and then it really is, hey, what do you think? You know, these are my concerns, what do you think? Um, one thing I do and I'm curious to hear what other folks in the panel do when I'm selling property in another jurisdiction and so the, the, the mass court doesn't weigh in on it I always think that's kind of funky. I, I, I think that's inappropriate, but that's how it is. So I've had one case where I had a GAL for end of life issues, and I asked her to weigh in on the sale of property. I think it was in Florida, um, just to have to have that in the file that somebody else did take a look at that. Um, not required, although I think it ought to be.
4: Yeah, I think that's that's smart as well. It's not something that I, I've had come up in the recent past, but. In 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 my role as as trustee or as fiduciary, at worst a GAL is a waste of time or money. At best, they're an ally and a resource because I I, I know that we're you know we're on the up and up and we're doing things in the best interest of the of the uh, beneficiary or the client. So but but it like everything, it's about the quality of the person you get. And if it's uh, someone who's been appointed from the court list, you're rolling the dice. As Gary said, you know, the ideal situation is when you can nominate someone who you know is competent, who you know is productive to work with, and who can serve as an ally in these difficult situations.
2: Yeah, I agree. There's also a nice check and balance. So when I serve, sometimes I serve as guardian and conservator for individuals going through divorce, or who have some extraordinary medical decision or a real estate sale or estate planning to do and if i'm the fiduciary i'm i'm the the guardian or the conservator then sometimes i do like to have a gal because you know there there was a statute uh pre-UPC that dealt with settlements and compromises that were undertaken by guardians and conservators. And under that statute, it was at the time 203 section 13 and section 14, it's now wound into the MUPC and it's accomplished through a petition to expand under chapter 190B uh, section five, um, particularly 40, section five-407 40, and five-408. That's where it's been supplanted. But um, under the law, you know, if I'm serving as a guardian or a conservator, especially if I'm representing somebody in a divorce or something extraordinary where I'm settling litigation or I'm settling a contract action or a, a tort, a personal injury, I really like to have a guardian ad litem because I want somebody to be able to evaluate whether the deal that I struck is as good as it can get. Because I never want a day when somebody comes back to me and says, you should have had this case tried. This should have gone to trial. Why did you settle? You settled short. Conversely, if I am going to go to trial, I don't want somebody to come to me later down the line and say, why did you bring this to trial spending all this kind of money when this could have settled? So I like to have a GAL evaluate it and report to the probate judge, especially in a divorce case, because that's invariably different than the divorce judge. And that puts two judicial eyes on potentially a separation agreement in a divorce, where I'm serving as guardian or conservator for a spouse who has a mental illness or an addiction issue or a physical incapacity, or for some reason can't make it through their own divorce, with their own ability to meaningfully execute a separation agreement. And so by having the probate judge give me the okay to settle and having the divorce judge allow the settlement in the way of a separation agreement, it's checks and balances and it quiets the issue. And that's really the goal of probate is to quiet issues and quiet title. And so I, I like the GAL for that purpose in particular.
0: Turning to the topic of um, representing incapacitated folks who are unable to communicate, and this is directed to Sarah, when you're serving as trustee of a trust for an incapacitated beneficiary from whom you typically ascertain the beneficiary's needs, from whom do you typically ascertain the beneficiary's needs if the beneficiary themselves is unable to communicate?
4: Sure. So I kind of break these out into two categories. Your very vanilla classic situation, which is what we usually have, where it's a you know a long term supplemental needs trust, where the beneficiary has been incapacitated for his or her whole lifetime or for a significant period of time. There are um, court appointed uh, fiduciaries, guardians, or conservators who are appropriate and acting in that person's best interest. And those are the people we would communicate with, both, you know, to account for the trust assets, but also to ascertain needs, expenses, budget, et cetera. We would, you know, handle that correspondence like we would directly with a a beneficiary who wasn't incapacitated in person, over the phone, um, through email or by letter. We do try to document things when there are decisions made or um, requests received and what the decision process has been, how we've determined either um, choice A or B or what we've decided as a total. But we don't hear, it's not that much different um, than what you would do directly with someone. And, and that's when, again, you have a functioning situation ideally mm-hmm everything's working well. And then there's another class of incapacitated beneficiaries, and I feel like we're seeing it more lately. I don't know if it's just me or my co-panelists would agree, but those are the beneficiaries in crisis. And a lot of that is mental illness and drug addiction. And some of it is also what I have recently feel is a new phenomenon, and that is Clients and beneficiaries who are living longer and are staying uh, functional with capacity longer, but then they're starting to lose it. And and really, I can break that down. So your incapacitated beneficiaries who have drug addiction or mental illness, that's, you know, I'm getting a call from elderly parents of an adult beneficiary who says, you know he's been arrested there's a claim of this and oh you know that learning disability you've already, always thought he had actually it's schizophrenia so you know that's that's a crisis situation and you're working with those parents in that situation if there aren't is not a healthcare proxy there is not a power of attorney and you're working with them to get the resources who can come in and crisis manage this situation who can evaluate this person and find out what they need what treatment options are available? What lawyers can we bring in to help get them out of the criminal case they're currently in to focus on the treatment that may not only be addiction, but also the underlying mental illness for which the beneficiary was self-medicating. So that's kind of one crisis area. And then the other area I've had the misfortune of being involved in uh, quite a bit recently is a very successful, high-functioning, Um, person who goes through his or her entire life has a set of fiduciaries, has a great estate planning attorney, a power of attorney with an appropriate agent, a healthcare proxy with an appropriate agent. And what happens is the documents are updated to make sure the beneficiaries are in line, but no one's checking in on the quality of these fiduciaries. They're aging along with their client. So this client experience I've recently had, his gentleman was in his 90s his estate planning attorney was in his 70s. The trustee he had was turning 70. He had a healthcare agent who was deceased and a backup who wasn't appropriate. And what happened when this beneficiary started showing signs of incapacity and started showing signs that he may be taking being taken advantage of by a personal assistant, all of those people said I don't, I don't want to do this. The estate planning attorney said I had a conflict. The trustee said, you know what? I'm just about to turn 70. It's time for me to retire. I'm going to resign from this trust. Who wants to take this bag? So stepping into that situation is very difficult. It actually, the attorney who stepped in as the estate planning attorney had to invoke rule 1.14 to start acting on behalf of his client who was making decisions against his best interest in an emergency way until we could get into court. All of that could have been avoided if the fiduciaries had been updated along the way to make sure that not only are these people competent, qualified professionals, they actually have the stomach to make the decisions and take the actions that would be needed if an incapacity or a claim of undue influence or anything like a bad actor coming on the scene started to develop.
0: Those are good tips. And do you recommend those communications um, occurring by the principal talking with the nominated agents or do you recommend the estate planner who's doing the plan and updating the plan to have those communications with those nominated agents? Um, Ideally both, you know, ideally
4: you're working as a team but once the plan is done, the the drafting attorney, unless he or she has a continuing role in the documents is not going to be involved in the continuing um, communication.
0: Lisa and Garrett, do you have any th- thoughts on, the, on this particular
2: issue? It, it does happen. People age, and sometimes you have non-responsive uh, fiduciaries out there. Um, I, I do. I agree with Sarah. It makes sense for both the client to check in with the people that they're selecting, um, but it also makes sense for the lawyer to do so, just to make sure that the nominated fiduciaries or the people who are going to be the new nominated fiduciaries understand their role and are feeling able to take over for a period of time not just for that moment but for years
3: also even if folks aren't getting older um sometimes even if folks you know they just started acting but they might not appreciate being involved in in conflict so it may be that they're involved with the whole family and they don't want to side with one person against the other person. And so their goal is really just to, to minimize, to ignore the conflict. Um, so folks aren't able to do what needs to be done. Sometimes that's when you might suggest that maybe somebody else steps in for a little bit or forever.
1: I agree. I think,
2: I agree. I think when people are nominated to serve, they're immediately flattered, but they don't understand what it's all about. And they're flattered and they wanna say yes. But it, but it's, it's we who we lawyers understand what it really means and, and that you've got to be responsive and make some tough decisions sometimes. And so that's why it makes sense for the lawyer to also call the fiduciary, just to make sure that people really understand what this means. And, and it might be that they feel pressured to tell a loved one, yes, of course I'll serve as your trustee, but they're able to express some concerns about it or ask questions about it of the lawyer and that's when you really find out if the person can serve and really be there through thick and thin.
3: There's also an issue of being unpopular. (laughs) And even if it's not conflict among the family that often what it is, is um, making decisions so that the beneficiary will despise you. Uh, (laughs) And and sometimes that's the role of the the fiduciary, especially if there's addiction issues going on. if there's mania going on, those are the big times I've seen where people can get furious.
4: Or, or it's just a question of being able to say, I, I understand that you want to have all of these things. You don't have enough money. You will run out of money. This cannot continue. And for some people when they've been serving in a fiduciary role for a long period of time and that relationship is personal, as it often becomes when we provide this level of service, you have to be able to take a step back from that personal connection and say, I understand that you want this and I wish you could do it. You cannot. You will run out of money and I will breach my fiduciary duty if I continue to distribute funds at this rate. And that's it. To Gary's point, you know, it's it, it can be very unpopular and unwelcome news, but that's the job that you're being asked to do. And if you can't do it, then you shouldn't be serving. And
0: that dovetails to Next question about care committees, um, and this is directed to Sarah. How do you feel about the use of a care committee in a trust document where the settler directs a trustee to collaborate with other individuals and professionals who know the incapacitated beneficiary well?
4: So in, in general, I would say that I have a positive uh, sense of care committees. I've seen them work really well, particularly when uh, with licensed social workers who have served on them. Um, But you are only as strong as your weakest team member, which we all know. And there have been times where I have seen people designated on a care committee, I think really because either the person creating the care committee and his or her trust, two reasons. Either they were trying to find a role for this person and they didn't want to give them a bigger fiduciary role, which is bad choice number one, or (laughs) bad choice number two is they want to have more people involved because it makes them feel good to think this whole room of people are going to be evaluating the pros and cons of anything that has to do to them. And it's a a feather in the cap, isn't the right phrase, but it's, it's a comfort to know that all these people care about me. And that can be very productive when you have people who are thoughtful and appropriate. Uh, And it can be very counterproductive when you have somebody who's who's there who's either not appropriate because he or she is is not um, in a position to be able to make those types of decisions and give that input, or the person that you're having a challenge with is part of that committee. So for example, if uh, an individual names a personal assistant As part of this care committee because he or she has worked with that person for decades and feels like they're a quasi family member, but you as fiduciary have concerns that that person may be uh, causing the beneficiary to distribute too many funds to him and to others, then all of a sudden taking the recommendation or input from that person, you're suspicious of it as a fiduciary. Is, are they making that recommendation in the best interest of the beneficiary, or are they making that recommendation because they see this as another avenue to get funds? Mm-hmm. And so the the answer to the question is, it can work well, but like all of the documents we've been talking about and all of the planning we've been talking about today, it's all about the quality of the people being named, and the, our job as Attorneys and consultants to be reviewing those people and make sure that they continue to be appropriate in those roles um, So it's it's been a mixed bag for me. I don't know if Gary and Lisa you've you've had that experience as well
2: I, I think I, in addition. Oh, oh, go ahead Gary please, no, I insist. Oh, thanks. I was, I was gonna say in addition to the quality of the people I think it's the definition of the role and 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 creating some good boundaries and just definition of what this person is supposed to do and and what their purview is and what I find for my clients is rather than a committee I I like to encourage a trust protector I think that a trust protector just one person can uh, really do the trick And, and then you can sort of carve out and designate what types of duties and what types of responsibilities the trust protector has and when you even turn to a trust protector for certain specific issues. Um, And so that's, I tend to think that less people involved and less cooks in the kitchen makes for a, a better, clearer administration of any fiduciary responsibility and so i would tend to have one trust protector with a very defined role rather than a committee
4: i think that's a good a good point lisa in that uh, the wearing of too many hats so i've had a few situations come up where we, we routinely serve as uh, trustee and personal representative but for long-term clients of mine who don't have close family don't have professional resources and have one child who was permanently disabled. They asked me if I would also serve as a conservator for their son and guardian for their son after they weren't able to do so. And my response to them was only if they update their documents to provide for an accounting to an attorney at a law firm I've never been affiliated with, I have no connection with other than knowing that that person is, is competent, age appropriate, and then having a successor to that person because to your point, you're you're narrowing the scope of people, but you are providing that trust protector or outside perspective role where there's someone else who's making sure that everything you're doing is appropriate. And part of the reason why I wanted it is the, the remainder beneficiary after this disabled child's life is a charity. And I don't want the charity coming back and saying, why did you spend all this extra money on this accommodation or this vehicle or this... Um, piece of technology, you sh- that should have been preserved for the contingent beneficiary. And with having somebody else who's receiving regular accountings, who has an opportunity to object or approve of them, I think you're protecting yourself as a fiduciary, as well as making sure that the beneficiary's best interests are always kept in mind.
3: I, I completely agree. I think that they're kind of analogous to a GAL in that way. It's always good to have somebody over your sho- shoulder um, to protect you from down the road. Um, as far as committees go, I'm I'm biased against committees as a general rule. I don't like committees. No offense to everybody else. Um I sometimes work work alongside, um, but if committees want to make a recommendation, God love them, um, as long as it's merely a recommendation, as long as it's not mandatory.
0: Why, Gary? Do you, are you against committees? Um, what is the reasoning
3: behind that? So you know, as I guess, as a as a this might not be the the place, but as a general quick you know, my yeah. quick rant against committees. Often what it is, is the loudest voice will, will have more sway than the wisest voice. Um, uh, there will sometimes be the waves of people agreeing this way or agreeing that way based on whatever way the wind's blowing. And it might not necessarily be the collective wisdom as much as just whatever group dynamics happened that day. So I'll, I enjoy being there and just watching the group dynamics and seeing how that <laughs> swirls. That's my, my last hat as a psychotherapist. But as an attorney now, um, uh, I think it's lovely to see. It's, you know, I'll, I'll eat my popcorn watching it, but I think it doesn't always come up with the best answers.
0: And Sarah, who would you recommend on such committees if if folks were to, to implement that?
4: I think uh, to Gary's point, having a select few. So I, in the cases where I've seen it work, it's been one professional, either a geriatric care manager, a social worker, somebody who has the expertise to say, okay, we're, we're, our needs are, are outgrowing this particular facility who who is it on the team that can tell me what are the six best facilities in the same geographic area that i should be considering so having that professional role for someone who who can do that and then having somebody who knows the person well you know what what they really would want on a personal level what they would object to or you know particular things this person out of fear of water so that place that you were looking at on the coast of maine not a great idea so you know things like that that can provide you that personal insight that all the quality profession that you can have surrounding you including yourself as a professional fiduciary cannot provide but again they're really a small number so a professional and then a close family or friend uh member i've seen that work well Age appropriate, so someone who's of the same age or younger, not someone who's generally older, and um, just like kind of a, what I would say about agents in a healthcare proxy, never a beneficiary's mother. Um, I, I think that's very hard um, for anyone's mother to be in these types of situations, so I always, unless there's that's the only option or the only appropriate option, I always recommend against it.
1: I find sometimes that clients like the idea of having a, a, you know, a sibling of an incapacitated beneficiary on a care committee, thinking that they're going to bring that kind of personal knowledge to the table. But then in practice, there can be a whole history to that relationship, or the the sibling feels like they're being put in a difficult situation where they're part of a team who may have to say no, you know, to distributions. Um, I don't know if, if or just to you know, recommended courses of action. I don't know if any of you have run into that
3: before. I haven't done it on a committee, but as a general rule, if they're a fiduciary, I'm always cautious about how that's going to affect the sibling relationship. So in next years, the parents will die and will be the two siblings, Um, especially if it's a younger sibling, if healthy sibling is younger. my, My fear is always that the the beneficiary will feel infantilized by having their younger sibling now make decisions for them. So I, I try to avoid that typically. It, it, I should say if it's an older sibling or depending upon the situation, if it's somebody who the beneficiary respects and they feel held by having the, the sibling act in that role, I think that's fine. But it's important to take a look and see what the effects will be uh, now and then down, down the road.
0: We don't have any current questions to the panelists yet, so I'm gonna ask another question to Lisa. And this is, if there's competing um, you know, family members who are, who are fighting over whether guardianship and conservatorship is appropriate, let's say the incapacitated person has a healthcare proxy and power of attorney in place, um, but there's a, guardi- a contested guardianship, for instance, have you ever seen a court ratify or uh, declare them, declare such instruments to be irrevocable, as opposed to um, ordering a guardian to be put in place.
2: Yeah, the court can do that, um, and sometimes this plays out in an action to affirm a healthcare proxy. So, so sometimes um, you can actually bring an action. To affirm a healthcare proxy, that would be under uh, Chapter 201D, Section 17. Um, or you could bring an action for declaratory judgment, which is an equity action. Uh, and if you bring an equity, you could ask the court to make that kind of a decision, either revoking an instrument or, or overriding somebody else's revocation um and keeping some keeping a fiduciary in place so yeah it can be done Um, i think when you're thinking about these kinds of actions you want to think about who are the interested parties because you're going to need to be serving interested parties and when you're bringing an action like this you want to reach your result, your desired outcome. And if you're going to be creating a situation and a litigation environment where you're serving a lot of people, then you're almost inviting more conflict or at least more questions and more appearances than maybe you really want. Or if there's a trust and you need to notify 385 beneficiaries, you know, you you want to think twice before you reflexively file, let's say, an equity action. You want to think about um, who you're going to have to serve. So for example, if you are going to serve uh, an action to affirm a healthcare proxy or to revoke a, a proxy or, or to remove a agent under a proxy and if you're going to do this under chapter 201 D section 17 then interested parties include a range of people one range of people that has some nuance and slight difference it's not necessarily heirs the way that it is in guardianships um, and so, and it does, There, you do need to notify all of the fiduciaries. And so it's a little bit different and you want to be sure that you're not going to file something and then end up with a real litigation mess on your hands where you can't reach an outcome because there's too many personalities and personalities that don't even need to have a role in the decision that's being made. But the, the answer is yes, it can be done. It can be done either through a guardianship, a conservatorship. It can be done through an action to affirm or override a proxy or to remove, um, to revoke appointments. It can be done in a general trust petition or in a petition to expand a guardianship or conservatorship or a typical equity where you're seeking declaratory relief. Um, You could even potentially reach your end result in a petition for instructions but i wouldn't recommend doing it that way because a petition for instructions is bringing a dispute to the court without asking for one particular settlement it's asking the court to sort of weigh in on the dispute without actually arguing it one way or the other and if you're seeking a declaratory Judgment on the other hand, that is where you take a position and you're definitely taking a position on how the dispute should be settled. So that's the type of equity that I would bring as an action for declaratory judgment rather than an action for
3: instructions.
0: And if all of the interested, oh, go ahead, Gary. Oh, um, you
3: go Just on that last point about um, uh, petition for instructions. So if I'm counsel, there's no way I'm bringing a petition for instructions, but if I'm fiduciary, sometimes my position will be, you know, there's a question. I don't know what the answer is. I'll put it out there to the court. Court, you, you instruct me. Um, and often it's clear what the answer is anyway, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's politic to toss it out that way.
0: Agreed. You protect, to yourse- a
3: good
0: you protect yourself, too. Yeah. With that? You protect yourself, too, as a fiduciary.
3: So, so it, it could help. So i I do not, you know, as historically, I don't shy away from being the bad guy. And often that's my role that I get brought in to be. But I don't think it's good to be antagonistic by any means. So if that helps me to keep my relationships going with all the parties, I'm pleased to have be a, a petition for instruction, a neutral petition for instruction.
4: I think this is something that's going to be particularly challenging in the current environment where we're all living. So, so much of, you know, the positions we take and the courses of action that we decide upon are based on the information we're gathering. And particularly with incapacitated individuals, you, you're not able to visit them in most places right now in facilities. You're not able to have that direct in-person contact in a conference room, in a, a meeting room, in a assisted living or nursing facility or any of that and and this type of technology format while it's wonderful for programs like this at the BBA and and for other types of communication, it's not as helpful with beneficiaries who are incapacitated. Um, you know, by and large, so this is this is a hurdle and a challenge to be able to get the information you need as fiduciary as counsel and whatever role and and we have to keep working to find what are the ways around this. I've heard of some creative uh, options people are exploring and utilizing and testing during this time, Um, but I think it's important that we don't say, well, we can't, you know, we can't have that in-person meeting, so I guess we're just going to have to rely on X. It's just too important of an issue and um, to do that, so I think we're all struggling and, and experimenting with the best ways to make sure that we are able to get that information and make those decisions on the best way to proceed um, in the court or outside the court.
1: I think you know given the current situation it might be helpful to hear from all of you sort of how you are continuing to serve incapacitated beneficiaries and individuals during this unique time and kind of what Steps are you taking to be able to gather that information to the best of your ability or to serve their needs?
3: You know, yeah, a very quick one. Um, just a very quick vignette of, of, of frustration. I have somebody for whom I'd have them get tested for crack use every half week or every week. And that was the regular thing. And sometimes it'd be two weeks. And at some point I realized it's not, it's not responsible for me to do that. That is probably better to not have that as a uh, hanging over them and to have them uh, infected. So I've, I've stepped back from that painfully, but I've had to do that.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. It's very it's a challenging time. You know, I, I uh, do serve as a, a concierge type of trustee for several people who have some wealth and, and mental illness and who needed, they, they've needed me for a long time. It's not just because of the COVID shelter. And so I've been serving people for a while in this role, but when people needed to, To shelter and to be home then it meant that I needed to find new ways to make life uh, comfortable for people without having to step foot out of their homes so I have uh, food delivery coming to many people I've got many people who have food delivery services Uh, you know right away when everybody went into shelter suddenly Peapod stopped and Amazon took three weeks to start delivering stuff again. Every, and you can't get certain things. There's a lot of supply that's not out there, but great demand, people reporting. But I have been able to find ways to bring Passover Seder to somebody's doorstep so they can open the door and bring the food in. Um, I have been finding ways to deal with their socialization in a safe way, Um, how to get cars serviced, and and just how to make life function, how to bring a caregiver in, how to have um, Zoom-enabled therapy, um, and how to do Zoom-enabled, HIPAA-compliant medical certificates. I've been in court twice a week, if not three times a week, on guardianships and conservatorships. Uh, and a little bit of trust litigation too, but mostly it's emergency-based guardianship and conservatorship um, with medical certificates that were drafted in a HIPAA-compliant, Zoom-enabled meeting, you know? (laughs) So everything is different, but it's happening.
0: Gary and Sarah, how have you handled COVID and your clients who you can't always meet in person anymore?
4: It's, it's been a challenge. We do have um, uh, many older clients, shockingly. And, um, you know, it's, it's also, we're often the first stop where, you know, a client who I'm talking to regularly, all of a sudden, I, I'm, you know, she's asking me, is this bill paid? And we either never paid that bill, or we've been paying it since the dawn of time. And those types of things are, you know, I see the first stages of cloudiness, or we call it, you know, getting a little a little foggy or a little cloudy and we try to have a plan in place to be able to to have the family members or fiduciaries named in other roles informed at that point and talk with that client oh would it be okay with you if we started sending copying you know your daughter who's designated as attorney in fact on our letters to you and sending her the accountings and you know just reporting to her you know some clients are very comfortable with that they want everything summarized and reported to their families some don't well, so we try to be careful, but it's been a real challenge. And for some of our clients, you know, just be, forget about incapacity um, from a mental or physical standpoint, but who have hearing loss and are, have the early stages of dementia. Well, those hearing aids are long gone and without the family members being able to come into the assisted living facility and track them down every few days and replace the batteries and make sure that mom's got them in her ears, she can't hear me when I'm calling to check on her and see how she's doing. So it's getting the staff involved in those places and saying, I'm gonna be calling at a particular time can you check the battery level? Can you make sure the hearing aids are in, and then can you make sure that this resident is in a private location where she can talk freely? So it's it, you know there have been a few times where um, we've done some through the fence uh, communication where it was something really urgent where somebody's on one side of a uh, an outdoor area and a member of our team is on another. But we've tried not even to do that because a lot of places don't want um, outsiders even on their property, never mind, you know, in the in the unit. So it's been a real challenge. It's a lot of phone calls for those clients who aren't able to do Zoom or FaceTime. Um, and then it's working with the people that, who they hopefully have in place to get the information that we can't get from them directly.
3: I, I, I would agree. Agree that it's a struggle and sometimes it's just slowing things down, but but sometimes it's just praying. So I'm guardian of somebody in Connecticut. Um, She skipped the Commonwealth to evade justice um, thinking that the guardianship wouldn't follow her and it mostly hasn't. So she's been in a hotel in a fancy town in Connecticut for 10 years, 12 years. Um, But it looked like the hotel might shut down for COVID and so we, this was right in the thick of it right when it was starting. And the fear was we wouldn't get any place to, to put her. So at some point it looked like it's either a bench or I'm going to drive down to Connecticut and bring her to my house, which I really, really didn't want to do. So I crossed my fingers hard enough and they did not shut down that, that hotel. So a state of emergency is often a state of emergency.
4: Yes.
1: Well, thank you, Sarah, Gary, and Lisa for your time today. I think you've provided a lot of really great and helpful information on an area that is difficult to you know manage on in a normal time, but especially during COVID. and um, you know your knowledge and wealth of expertise about the interaction of various fiduciary and agent roles is incredibly helpful. and um, you know I hope that people got a lot out of it today. So thank you
3: again. Thank you. Thank you. So
4: Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you.
3: If there are questions and if I'm answering questions on the thing, will it go away once this ends?
0: I think you can answer the question. Right. If you want to just go ahead and answer the question right now, you can.
3: Oh, verbally. Got it. So the question is, is it hard to get an emergency hearing right now? Somebody's heard that getting a fiduciary appointment is difficult. It's possible exploitation. So to get a guardian or a conservator appointed is very, very difficult to get a temporary guardian or Temporary conservative appointed is not so difficult. The big thing is what county it is. I've seen Worcester lately as a superstar. I've gotten hearings really, really quickly, but I've found Middlesex to be very good. Um, Suffolk is typically very good, um, but not necessarily for the right emergency. Um, You'd have to find a clerk to try to get it. I think it's really county dependent. And if you're looking for temporary as opposed to permanent, and then how much of an emergency you can... Um, effectively allege or appropriately allege in the affidavit of emergency.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I am. Yeah, I have found that we've been able to have hearings. You know, if, if you file, let's say, your case on a Tuesday, you're generally being heard by Friday. So it's not terribly delayed. You can get your your emergency hearings accomplished. It depends. Court by court. Initially, the hearings were telephonic. Now there's Zoom. And so you're actually in front of the judge by, by Zoom instead of telephone. Um, but it, it's difficult. I think the hardest part is really the gatekeeper, because it used to be that we'd walk the case into the courthouse ready to try to get up in front of the judge. You can't do that right now. And there's a gatekeeper there that needs to read the pleadings And it just, it's not the same thing as being able to answer a question right there in real time. And so some pleadings get kicked back and it's just a harder, more cumbersome process. But I find that if I file on Tuesday, I get the hearing on Thursday or Friday. So it's within a week, it's done. Within 72 hours, it's done.
0: Great. I don't see any more questions. So thank you, everybody.
2: Good. All right, thank you. you. Bye bye. Bye everyone.
1: Bye bye. Thank you all.